Let us, let us go before the Lord and pray. Father God, we thank you for this time to come before your word. You have blessed this congregation tremendously uh, with your presence, with your provision, uh, just with your grace. And so God, I pray that this hour as we, we stop and look at your word and listen to you speak to us, Lord, I pray that you would speak, that we would hear, that we would understand, and that we would obey. Let this time be for your glory, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The dilemma of the human condition, I think we can all agree, is that we live in a world filled with suffering. You can't get out of bed in the morning without aches and pains or with the dread of the day. You can't go through the day without some type of stress or anxiety. Our lives are full of suffering. It's just part of the human existence. And this reality, I think, causes many to oppose the will of God. The fact that we live in a fallen and suffering world is the chief argument of people who reject the gospel. The very fact that disease and famine and war, abuse, etc., all these things show us that, that something is not right. Would you agree? Something's not right in our world. Even atheists will agree on this point, that there is something not right. It's as if the things in our world should be different. The way we live should be different. It's as if we know innately somehow that the world and our living in it ought to be something else. I don't think any human being can avoid these truths. Now, so this is, here's the meaning of God's law. The Mosaic law revealed in the Old Testament through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, even through the wisdom books uh, and, and the great works of the prophets, all of the Old Testament, all of God's law points to this state of things in the human condition. It all points to this human dilemma that we live in. And so last week we saw in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 12, a tension in how the Pharisees looked at the law by looking at the letter of the law, and Jesus shows the spirit of the law. And in our human condition, there is this tension here. Jesus' disciples, if we remember last week, they were hungry on the Sabbath, and Jesus granted them permission to reap grain and to satisfy their hunger. And the Pharisees saw that as an offense to God's law. And Jesus taught them what the meaning of God's law was. And so this week, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. And so we're continuing this observation here of this chapter that Jesus is Lord, especially of the Sabbath law, of all of the Mosaic law, all of God's law. But particularly here in this context, the Sabbath law is what is being challenged. And this week, Matthew's account shows us even further who Jesus is. Remember, Matthew's chapter 11 and 12 focus on Matthew's showing us who Jesus is by how others responded to him. We're going to see more of that today as Jesus heals on the Sabbath. So let's read together this passage and listen for the voice of God as we see Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath and as, as the compassionate healer of the afflicted. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word and look at Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Matthew tells us that he went from there and entered the synagogue 
And man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Verse 12, Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father God, your word is direct, but your word shows compassion. Your son, Jesus Christ, is engaging here with the needs of all human failings, all of our failures, all of our suffering, all of our our, our separation from your presence, Lord, is, is wrapped up in this human dilemma that we find ourselves in. Not only is there this man here in the synagogue who is suffering with a, a physical problem with his hand, there's also this tension here of the evil of man's thoughts and somehow interpreting your law the way that we want to. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would speak to us all through this passage, that you'd speak to us through your word. And I pray, God, that you would show each and every one of us who your son, Jesus Christ, is and how desperate we are for his His salvation. The blood on the cross spilled for us is what we desperately need. And so, God, use this time for your glory and to draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. God bless you. Again, this human dilemma we find ourselves in. We see that in this passage, don't we? There is a human dilemma, and it's universal across history. It's universal across culture. It's universal across all humanity. It's a dilemma that has plagued theologians for millennia. Why? Is there evil and suffering in the world? Why is there disease in the world if God is so good? We see that here. There's a tension here. That's, that's what's here. So why do bad things happen to good people is why it's been phrased before. Why is there war? Why is there suffering? Why is there disease and why is there death? It's the, it's the human tension. It's the human tension, but with our God, it's this dilemma we find ourselves in. And why would a man, think about this, why would a man sitting in an obscure synagogue on a Sabbath day, be suffering with the withered hand. His physical ailment, I mean, we see this clearly, his physical ailment, his hand is withered. It, it certainly caused him other pain. You, can you imagine having a hand that you could not use, that was drawn up like this, and probably maybe a little bit of rigor mortis, and just tension and stiff, and maybe some muscles were, were atrophied. Who knows? His, his hand was unusable. You can imagine that this caused other pain for him as well. I mean, he would be less likely to work and he would be dependent upon uh, the generosity of others. He may have been a beggar. We don't know for certain. It's not clear here. But we do not know for certain who this man was or why his body was in such physical distress. We don't know what caused this. But it, he. the point is he's in the synagogue worshiping his Lord. And he's suffering physically. But we can assume that if this man was sitting in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, I think that we, he was most likely a member of the community because the synagogue was the local gathering place of worship. It was, 
I wouldn't call it an extension of the temple per se, but it was the local place of where the, the law was read and where the worship occurred and where teaching happened. What happened here on the Sabbath day in the synagogue? That was a tradition. Uh, his presence shows that he honored the Sabbath traditions by being there, first of all. What, what are some of the traditions of the Sabbath? Number one, the Sabbath was a holy day. We saw this last week. We're looking because all of this occurs in, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. All of this is occurring on the Sabbath. The Sabbath tradition understood this day as holy. It's a holy day. It was a day for rest. It was, it was also a sign. The Sabbath actually pointed to the special covenant relationship that, that, that God's people had with him. That's what the Sabbath was for. And, but, but the bigger point here is that the Sabbath all throughout the Old Testament law pointed to a day of joy. The Sabbath day was not a day of humdrum law keeping. The Sabbath day was a day of joy in the presence of our creator God. When, when people would meet in the synagogues, here's what happened in the synagogues. The, the, the meeting would be filled with prayer. I mean, the men would be praying. Out loud, not sitting in the corners quietly. I mean, out loud, prayer. There would be scripture reading as the center of the gathering. And it was an honor to be asked to read scripture. Jesus was asked to do this regularly. We saw that in the gospels. So scripture reading, because God's word was read out loud. That's the center of the synagogue worship. There was also in the synagogue worship a time of what what has been called edifying dialogue. That's the quote, the edifying dialogue. Now, is that to the level of our common, our modern day sermon? I'm not there. I don't know. But you can understand that there was a time of teaching for edification of the body. So you can even see here that the traditions of the synagogues even became the foundation for the traditions of the church. You see what, and, and what we see in the book of Acts, Paul, and even throughout Paul's epistles and his letters, everywhere that Paul went in the New Testament to preach the gospel, where did he generally begin when he came to a new community? He would go to the synagogues first and start teaching and reasoning with them there. That's what the New Testament tells us. So this day we have a man here sitting in the synagogue practicing all of these traditions of this day. And his hand is withered. He's suffering physically. Let's look here at verse 10. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, we know who they are. And I've said this uh, from the pulpit in years past, and I want to say it again here. Anytime you look in the Gospels particularly, and you see the word they, nothing good comes after that. If you're taking notes in your Bible, every time you see the word, and they said, nothing good follows. <laughs> because who, who, who are the they that they're referring to? They're referring primarily here in this context to the Pharisees, the, the, the religious legalists. Okay? And they said to Jesus, I mean, imagine Jesus is just in the synagogue. Number one, he's been in the fields with his disciples getting scolded for picking grain on the Sabbath. And now he's in the, he's in their synagogue, it says in verse nine. He's in their synagogue. He's in the synagogue that these Pharisees came from. He's right there. And they look at him and pose a, a tricky question, a trap question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? 
probably the Pharisees were, were taking with them a little bit of scorn from being scolded and corrected out in the fields as they were correcting his disciples. Maybe they come back into the synagogue. Okay, this is our territory now. Okay, Jesus, what do you think? Can you imagine the scene? Imagine it there. And there's a, there's, we see here, I think we see a deeper stain on the soul of man's dilemma that we're talking about. This dilemma of evil and suffering, this deeper stain on the soul of man's dilemma is that of sin. We're going to see this. We see it all throughout this text. It was, it was the failure of Adam in that Adam chose the evil. Because Adam and Eve, we see this in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 1, he, Adam and Eve were made by God who himself is good. Adam was made a moral agent. He was made a steward of all that God made. Only one moral restriction was given by God in the garden to Adam and Eve. Only one. Actually, he gave it to Adam. He never, we don't see in the text that God spoke to Eve and said, he spoke to Adam and said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't say that to Eve. He said it to Adam. Well, let that sink in, men. God spoke to Adam so that he could lead his wife. Yet Adam failed. And Adam, and, and Eve, Eve was, dis, well, I mean, she was, she chose Distrust of God. She was dis- she was distracted by the serpent. She was deceived by the serpent, and Adam chose not to break in there and protect her. And so, this original sin of disobedience plagues the human condition. Now, that's where we are. This is the idea of the original sin, and it's biblical. And I say that because I have been in situations in years past where I've been sitting in meetings on boards of directors of of Nonprofits and someone, I remember this one meeting that still stands out to me. This one person said, Oh, we don't need to go down that road and practice or talk or teach original sin because that's so divisive. And I thought, What? Original sin is real. It's biblical. The original sin is that Adam failed. They disobeyed God. They disobeyed the one moral rule, the one moral restriction that God said, Don't do this. One all it took. And so original sin is the curse of us all. Now we see the effects of original sin here in verse 10. If you wish, you can flip over with me to Genesis chapter 3. Let's just take a look at the curse that God speaks over Adam. We're not going to look at this curse over over the serpent or even over Eve. We're going to look particularly at the curse of Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Let's look here at verse 17. Because this helps us kind of lay the groundwork for what's happening here in this scene in the synagogue. It's all going to tie together here pretty quickly. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What do we see here? Why is this important? Because the way that that Adam is punished by God is God speaks a curse over him. All of 
my creation will now suffer because of your disobedience. You want to talk about pain and suffering. You want to talk about disease and withered hands and physical ailments and a world that is just falling apart and doesn't seem to be right. The reason for that, we can see right here in God's curse, because of you, Adam, all of my creation is now cursed too. What do we see here? Cursed is the ground that you will have to glean food from. The very earth that I made you from and breathed life into your lungs from is now cursed. The very pain and struggle of life will persist. It says in in verse 17, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That pain is is the struggle of survival, is the pain of, of harvesting enough to sustenance to make it one more day. It's the pain of our bodies. It's the pain of just living. It's there. Even me, I'm, I've been dealing with a pain in my right leg for about three or four weeks now. It's getting somewhat better, but even this morning, I, I, it's not. It's getting back to its own pain. It's. I'm standing here now in pain. In other words, and the doctor told me he said, "You're not 20 anymore, Bryant. Just take it easy." Thank you, Doc. Appreciate that compassion, right? But that's life, isn't it? The pain of living. Thorns and thistles. Anybody here a gardener trying to grow things? What's the number one struggle of growing garden, of growing flowers or growing vegetables? You got to deal with the thorns and the thistles of the ground. But the thorns and the thistles here is also, I think, a, a bigger picture too. It's the thorns and thistles of our world, our existence, our pain, our suffering, our struggles, our suffering and death, our decay. Adam's disobedience ushered in thorns and thistles, bodily decay. Anybody say amen whose body is decaying? And so what we see here in in Matthew chapter 12 is the result of Adam's disobedience, his fall. We all as human beings live in a fallen world. We live in a world where suffering and pain exist. We live in a fallen world where evil is the norm because of our father Adam. And we are born under that curse. We carry it to this day in our very being. It's who we are. And so this suffering of the original effects of sin is what I think we are seeing here in this man's withered hand in verse 10. The Pharisees, they they plotted evil here. You see this in verse 10. At the expense of this man with the withered hand, notice what they're saying. Looking to Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Clearly implying, they may have even been pointing to this man, but they clearly directed the attention to this man's suffering. Not only did they ask this question to accuse Jesus and discredit him, they also, I mean, they were using another human being and his suffering for their own glory and pride here. Anybody ever been victims of that? That someone is so vile and so evil and so self-centered that they use you to glorify their pride? See what they're doing here? They ask the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? 
And I think this is a question with, with purpose of deceit, clearly. That's what Matthew tells us. This question was intended to deceive. But I think there's a deeper question here. I think even today in our current circumstances, uh, can we apply the same spirit of this question to our today's circumstances? Ponder this for just a second and please hear my heart. Can a pharisaical question of today be similar to this question? Yes. Christians, we do it all the time. Ponder this. Can a Christian be a Christian if he or she votes for a Democrat? Is that in the same spirit of this question? Yeah. I'm going to go even deeper here in my toes. I'm going to crush your toes and you're probably going to have a meeting after the service. Can a Christian be a Christian if he or she takes the COVID vaccine? Have we taken this, this pain of COVID to the level in the churches that if you even think about doing anything about it, you're somehow not a Christian? I'm not saying that the vaccine is the answer. That's not what I'm saying here from the pulpit. My point is the attitude we have toward one another, we define someone's Christianity based on if they want the vaccine or if they don't want the vaccine. Now, there's a lot of things we're still learning about COVID. I'll say that up front. I'm not saying the vaccine is the answer. But do we condemn people? They're not Christians because it's the same spirit here. So the question in verse 10, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? I think that's a question. That's the, the question here in verse 10 is the wrong question. It focuses on the legality of morality. Is this person, or can we heal on the Sabbath and still be in God's favor? That's the question. They're trying to deceive Jesus. They're trying to trap him. But that's, that's their question. They focused on the morality of the action, they, the, the legality of the action. They were focusing on the piety of doing something on the Sabbath. Instead, the truth here is going to be revealed. God's desire for man's well-being is the question, not whether or not someone should or should not do something good. God's intent for the Sabbath is for man's well-being as we glorify God on this day and we bring Him honor. So now let's take a close look at Jesus' reaction to this question. His method of answering questions with a question is an ancient way of controlling the conversation, but it's also a way for truth to reveal itself. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not answering their question. He's, he's answering with a rhetorical question. Although the Pharisees asked a question needing a yes or no answer, Jesus dives deep into their thoughts and he shows them where they're wrong. He's showing them his authority over the Sabbath here. He's taking control of the conversation. Verse 11. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Very good question. And the question is directed to anyone who is in attendance at the synagogue that day. And any of the men in that room would have had ownership of livestock. Everyone in that room would have had livestock of some kind. And I would say most definitely a sheep of some kind in most households, or at least in the community for sure. Now, now sheep were very valuable. So think about this in this agrarian society. What, what was the value of the sheep? Sheep provided many things for survival. They provided wool for clothing. They provided milk. They provided meat. And most importantly, sheep were sacrificed in the temple for the atonement of sin. Very valuable animal. 
So livestock were important and sheep were valuable beyond any other animal in the, in the barnyard. Any, any other stock of animals would have been lesser than probably than the sheep in the, in the minds of many of these folks. And so the answer here that, that many of them were given, it would be a, a, a val- weighing the cost. To save an animal is right because of the greater benefit that the sheep provided. So yes, of course you can save a sheep on the Sabbath. That was an understood answer. No one in that room would have allowed a sheep to stay in a pit on the Sabbath because they were afraid of working and doing something on the Sabbath. Because the greater good, the value of that sheep, overpowered the work. Let's go get the sheep out of the, out of the pen. And the obvious answer is yes. But do we remember the human dilemma that we all face? Let's, let's remember that in this context. Do we remember the human dilemma that we all face? This sin problem that we have is what ushered in evil to God's perfect paradise in the beginning. This is what brought in the suffering that we're reading about here. Remember, Eden became a battleground, and how many of us have witnessed the destruction of a battlefield? It's bad. So God's sheep, the creatures of man and woman made in the image of God, if we we fell into a pit of destruction when the serpent deceived Eve and Adam and they failed in their, and, and Adam failed in protecting her. Jesus is making a strong point here about the human condition. The problem of evil has distorted the true understanding of the Sabbath and sin has corrupted the true meaning of God's word. God's will is at question here, and Jesus, I think, he's setting the, he's setting the question straight. He's setting the division straight. It's not so much can we or should we. The question is, will God do good? Yes. And Jesus is using this encounter with the Pharisees in the synagogue, I think, to teach us about the will of God concerning his Sabbath, not man's interpretation of Sabbath. And since Jesus himself is the Son of God, I think he has a pretty good insight into what's, what the intent is. I think he would have firsthand knowledge of the will of his Father in heaven. Don't you? Amen? And so Jesus asked a rhetorical question here about rescuing a sheep on the Sabbath to show what God values. It's what we see here in the text. Value is at the center of God's will. So what does God value on the Sabbath? I believe to understand what God values on the Sabbath is, is, number one, rest. The Sabbath rest is seen in what he values in his creation. What does he value? Of course, God values all that he made, because when we look in Genesis chapter 1, in the seven days of creation, everything he made, in verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, always end with, and it was good. Yet... It was when the first man and the first woman were made that everything kind of comes together and all of the harmony of everything that was complete, when every aspect of creation was complete and in its proper order, we see that God said it was very good. Notice that? When everything was complete in the creation, in its proper order, God said it is very good. And what happened with The fall of Adam and Eve is that harmony of everything being in proper order became out of order. Evil disrupted God's perfect order, and we are now in a distortion of God's original good, that which was very good. 
And that's the human dilemma that we face. And that's what we're seeing here with the man with the withered hand. And within God's creation, there are levels of value. Clearly, a plant or a tree has less value than an animal, since some of these animals eat plants for food. Okay? Clearly, humanity has more value than an animal since the two creatures possess varying levels of consciousness. Despite what some of the uh, the, the cat people and the dog people think, um, human beings are smarter. Amen? Animals don't have the same value as human beings. We, we care for them, we take care of them, and, and, and any time that we get more upset over the harm of a cat than we do over the harm of a child... I think there's problems here. Can we just say that? So clearly in God's created order, now the cat people are saying, he didn't say anything about dogs. Dogs are better than cats. I'm just Because dogs obey. Cats try to rule. Just say it. But you see why we're going here? Jesus is making a point here in verse 11 and 12 that there is a value here. Verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Of course. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is good. Now, the first man and the first woman were to be stewards of God's creation. And instead of stewarding God's world, instead of stewarding all that He has created, they, they took it for themselves and we do the same. We toss God to the side. And this is the root of our sin. What does God value? In other words, if if we were in alignment with God's will on the Sabbath, we would value what He values. And clearly here in verse 11 and 12, these Pharisees did not value what God valued. They thought, of course, they're they're posing the question here to trap Jesus, but the question is is crazy. It makes no sense. Of course, you're... You're going to bring a, you're going to take care of a man more than you take care of a sheep. If you take care of a sheep on a Sabbath, of more value as a man, let's take care of them too. And God will be pleased with that. Because what does God value? What is God's will on the Sabbath? What makes him happy on the Sabbath? Number one, the, the Sabbath is the good of man. God values man. He gave us rest. Can everybody say amen to a day off one day a week? If we are, if we have the privilege of getting one day off one day a week, I mean, I've had seasons and uh, seasons way too long of seasons where I'm working seven days a week constantly. We've all find ourselves in that, but it's not good. And God gives us a day of rest. He values us, but also even bigger than that, the Sabbath is for the glory of God himself and man honors God on the Sabbath. Even in resting on the Sabbath, we're giving God glory. Because we're ceasing from all of the activities of the week to give God honor and glory on His day. And so there's good there in honoring God. When we cease from the struggles of the fallen world, the Sabbath rest gives us a glimpse into God's rest. That's what we looked at last week in Hebrews chapter 4. We also, on the Sabbath rest, we're getting a glimpse into the restored creation that fell. You see that? When we come together on this day, now we don't call this the Sabbath day. We spoke about this last week. This is the Lord's day. We honor the Lord. This is His day. 
which carries the same spirit of the Sabbath because we're honoring God. We're honoring His Son. We're carrying the same spirit here. And when we gather as God's people, do you realize that you are actually showing the world a glimpse, just a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like? You ever ponder that? Now, that'll give you a deeper respect for this day, won't it? It's not just a day where you rush the kids into the van and you scream at one another as a family all the way to the church. And even as you pull up into the church parking lot, you're, you're battling and struggling with one another. Okay, let's, let's, let's figure, let's get it all together here before we walk in. Now I say that because we've been just as guilty of that over the years as everyone in this room. Can we say amen to that sin? But when we come here this day, we're showing the world who our Savior is. We're showing the world a glimpse of a restored fallen creation, what it will eventually look like. Amen? So what is the will of God? The will of God on this day, that's what Jesus is saying in verse 12. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath because this man who needs healing, all humanity, who is suffering, the human dilemma that we find ourselves in, God would rather see that restored and comforted on his day than anything else of more value. Now, let's take a look here on the opposite side. What is the will or the value of these Pharisees on the Sabbath? I think we clearly see that the Pharisees in the synagogue valued only themselves. They didn't value anyone else. While their intent, I think, was to treat, to test Jesus, they, they clearly intended to test their own value and their authority in teaching the law. They were testing Jesus. Who has more authority here, Jesus, you or us? And Jesus is saying, oh, that's an easy question. Let's figure, I'll, I'll. Jesus kind of mops the floor with their question, doesn't he? Verses 10 and 14, I think, show us their intent. When we look at verse 10, and a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him? And then in verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. That right there shows their true intent. They were more, in, in, they were more in, they valued the good of their reputations. Their intent was to elevate their reputations over the care and the compassion for someone in their midst. They dishonored by way of deception, by finding fault with God's son of all people. And they dishonor God's glory here in several ways. They dishonor God by devaluing the suffering man. They, they, they dishonor God in failure to see that this man was made in God's image and, and he deserved dignity and respect and compassion. All human beings are made in God's image. And even if they are fallen sinners and outside of God's grace and outside of his redemption through the blood of our, his son, all human beings have the dignity of being made in God's image. And as God's people, we show dignity to all people. I don't care who they are. That's difficult when we have the, the, the mass murderer or the rapist. They don't deserve any dignity, we say, but they, they deserve punishment for sure. They've committed crimes. But at the same time, there is dignity in that human being, even in their fallen state. That's why God loves us so much to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from our sin because we're made in His image. So Jesus turns to this man. Let's look here at verse 13. We're going to wrap this up. 
As Jesus shows the value of human beings over sheep, verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. The human dilemma of pain and suffering is restored. You see this in verse 13? Jesus turns to this man who is clearly the focus of the inquiry by the Pharisees. He was the focus of their test. He was a pawn in their test. And the Pharisees were so blind to this man who was lesser, they, they were blind that they saw the Sabbath law only and ignored the plight of this poor soul. You see that? That's an even deeper revelation of the human dilemma. We're, we're all sinners. That's the point of sin. We ignore the plight of a suffering human being in favor of our self-glorification. Now, so did these Pharisees misinterpret the will of God? I think so. Don't you think? What Jesus is doing here, He's asking a rhetorical question about the value of a foreign animal versus the value of a human being. And by doing this, He's showing the true will of God. That's what He's doing. The law, God's law, was intended for the good. For the well-being of the fallen sons of Adam and daughters of Adam. God's law was intended for our well-being. The suffering of the sinful world was the result of sin. And the result of evil's dominance in our world continues the suffering that we endure. And the Sabbath day is God's will for us for the good in the midst of this pain and this suffering. So at any time that, next time that you go, like, Every one of us has to go to work tomorrow morning. <sighs> Monday morning, suffering with the boss, waiting to go in to be yelled at or whatever, or the, the piles of work that can never get done on time. Know this, that at the end of the day, at the end of the week, you have a God who loves you so much, He has granted you the gift of Sabbath on this Lord's day to enter into His rest for your well-being. At the same time, though, what is the best for us? Jesus insists that God is not offended in healing on the Sabbath here. Any act of good, any act of genuine goodness for the well-being of the suffering body or the suffering soul is good. Would you agree? And it's pleasing to the Lord. When we look here at Matthew 12, verse 12, what does he say? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's good. That's why I think it's good for us to gather to worship, but I think it's also good as a church if there was an opportunity to serve others and do good on the, on the Lord's Day. That's part of worship too. We could leave here on Sunday morning and go feed hungry people if the opportunity arose. We could leave here and go take care of homeless people if that opportunity arose. And God would be pleased. We would leave here and go home to our families and care for one another and love one another on this day. And that is good. And God is pleased as that is an act of worship on this day. So the restoring of health on the Sabbath as we see here, is like restoring the soul on the Sabbath too, isn't it? 
Both are desperately needed in this human dilemma we find ourselves in. Not only is our physical condition in suffering and pain, but is our soul under suffering and pain as well? Yes. Both actions are very good. This is why we gather. This is why we worship together. So in contrast, God's will, God's will is disobeyed when evil is done. God's will is disobeyed when His goodness is distorted for self-centered focus. Husbands, when we go home on Sunday afternoon and we sit on the couch and we have the remote control doing this, or we sit in front of our computer and browse the internet and we ignore our families, does that bring pleasure to the Lord? Because we're serving the self. We love our families, we love others, and that is what God honors today. So let's summarize, let's wrap this up. Let's summarize the teaching of what Jesus is saying here on His actions on the Sabbath day that we see here in Matthew 12. In in verses 1-8 through that we looked at last week, the state of hunger shows a humanitarian need. But, but allowing these disciples to pick grain and satisfy their hunger was legitimate and good behavior on the Sabbath day because it served a legitimate humanitarian suffering. And the needs of the poor wretched man here, his condition brings priority on the Sabbath day by healing him. You see that? Now when we look back at verse 6, Let's read that back here in verse 6. Here's what Jesus said to the uh, the Pharisees when they were out in the grain field. Verse 6, He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. That's the big point here too. There's something greater here. What's He pointing to? He's pointing to Himself, but He's also pointing to the kingdom of heaven that He's establishing in His ministry. That something greater than the temple is here. That something greater has arrived. The kingdom of heaven is much greater than the temple made by human hands. And this kingdom of heaven glorifies God as God provides the needs of His fallen humanity. You see that? This What He's pointing out here in, in verse 6 and what we see all throughout this is this idea, of, here's the theological language here, so bear with me. It's called realized eschatology. It's the idea of the already not yet. The kingdom of heaven is already here yet not complete and fulfilled. That's the reality of the human dilemma we find ourselves in. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus establishes through his ministry is here. And you would think, hallelujah, the kingdom of heaven is here. I never have to suffer anymore. I'm never going to be sick anymore. I'm never going to be hungry anymore. Hallelujah, everything is perfect. But that's not the reality of Scripture. The reality of Scripture is, yes, the kingdom of heaven is here now. Yet... It's not complete and fulfilled yet. It's coming. It's a both and. That's the answer to the human dilemma. That's the answer to the problem of evil that we find ourselves in. And Jesus is showing that here. I am here to heal what evil has brought into the world. Not just the physical ailments, but the soul soul that needs healing too. I'm here to establish my kingdom for my Father's glory. 
When Jesus heals this man, when we look here at verse 13 and 14, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. What do we see here? No objection comes from God when this occurs. And here's what's happening when, when he's healing the man's hand. He is, his hand is restored like it should be. His health is restored. The hand becomes healthy in comparison to the other one that was always healthy. You see where we're going here? So when Jesus is restoring the withered hand and making it healthy like the other hand was healthy, it's like it was as it should be. He's restoring the man's physical elements to where it should be. That's what the kingdom of heaven does for us as well. Not just physically, but more importantly, spiritually. The kingdom of heaven restores God's created order back to the way it ought to be. And when it's fulfilled at the end of times, as we sang today, oh, glorious day, (laughs) oh, glorious day, that's what we're going to see, that all of God's creation that is now tainted and fallen in sin, as we suffer and we struggle in, in that glorious day, it's going to all be restored back to the way it ought to be as it was in the beginning. You see the truth here? That's what Jesus is teaching here. That's what God's law was pointing to. All of God's word, all of his law is pointing to this reality of man's fallen condition. Yet the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of God is here to restore what humanity has broken. Y'all realize that every one of us are guilty of breaking this planet and breaking the created order that God himself made. I'm not, a, I'm not a, I'm not up here touting the, uh, what am I calling about the, the EPA folks. I'm not here saying that a tree is more valuable than a human being. I'm not saying here that a spotted owl is more valuable than a highway. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the reality of our fallen world is this. We caused it. And it is through the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we will be redeemed and all of God's created order will be restored to the way it ought to be. That's what Jesus is showing here in this scene. And he's showing the Pharisees, you've missed the point of my father's law. God's law is saying this. And so certainly, Jesus heals this man who does not request it. Let's think about this too. This man does not ask, dear Lord, save me and heal me. He's not asking for it. But clearly the heart of this poor man, I think, would desire it. And so this human dilemma we find ourselves in is that we are all just like this poor wretch with his withered hand. We're all just like him. Our souls are withered. Our souls are curled up like a worthless hand is, good for no work at all in the kingdom of heaven. Yet Jesus heals this man. He heals all of us too who come to him. Do you remember Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30 we looked at a few weeks ago? Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened. Certainly this man was worth more than a a farm animal. And and, and the goodwill of the Father in heaven is to care for his creation, to care for those he values most. Humanity made in his image is who he is after to restore. And we're valued to the point of redemption and we're valued to the point of restoration from this fallen world we're in that our original sin caused. And verse 14, we see a reaction to what the good was that Jesus did. 
Notice the reaction from the Pharisees in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, I'm certain that this man whose hand was restored, he most likely leaped for joy. We don't see that detail here, but I don't know about you, but if I've been dealing with a physical ailment for a long time, what would your reaction be? (laughs) It might be one of stunned shock, (laughs) but clearly there's some joy going on there too. And at the core of the Sabbath law is that this day, this one day out of seven, was an occasion for joy. Amen? Let's celebrate that this man's hand is now healed. That's a day of joy, isn't it? And the expectation of the Jewish law on the Sabbath was to enjoy the day as the people enjoyed their God. And certainly this healed man honored God with joy. But the Pharisees, they don't express joy in the healing of this fellow citizen of theirs. What do they do? (laughs) They did not celebrate with Jesus. They did not show him any compassion as Jesus served this man with compassion. These Pharisees missed the true understanding of the law. The priority of the Sabbath is this, compassion and joy in the Lord. The priority of the legalist here was destruction. So they clearly were not in God's will. The point of Jesus' actions here on the Sabbath was to show who He was. Let's not forget that. If Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and is Lord of the law of God, then Jesus shows that the true purpose of His ministry is to restore the fallen humanity and the fallen world to the original state of wholeness with their Creator. That's what's happening here. By restoring the suffering hand of this this poor man, I think Jesus is showing us His Lordship restores all things back to the state of where they ought to be. Anyone here in this room who does not know Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are not in a state of where you ought to be. Period. And it's the Savior, Jesus Christ, who does this. He restores us through His compassion. His compassion restores the health of this man, and He restores the spiritual health of us to a place of strength and honor so that we then honor God. You see that? So here's the question I want to leave with you on this. And Nathan, come on forward. I mean, we always want to take God's Word and ask the Lord, how does this apply to me? Has Jesus restored your soul to the state of where it ought to be? Are you living this day with joy? This day that is the Lord's day? Is your life restored? Is it healed? This is not something we do on our own. If we could, we wouldn't need a Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about physical healing here. If the Lord heals physically, hallelujah. And I've watched it happen. But it's not a demand of His people. That's the distortion of God's Word here. When people say that we have the authority to name, in in the name of Jesus, I claim you are healed. I think that's a very dangerous way to go unless there's humility in the prayer and if God wills. But more importantly, Where's your soul today? Because our joy doesn't come from our physical 
Where does the joy of this Lord come from? It originates within us, in our very being. Is this a day of joy for you? Or is this going to be another day of, oh me, oh my? Amen. We're going to close with a hymn. Which one are we at? Just the chorus of O Glorious Day. I want this time to be a time of reflection on the Lord. Let's sing this with joy. O Glorious Day. But if there is something in your soul that has been stirred up by God's Word today, and you say, Pastor, there is something in me that God is wrestling with me over, and I do not have joy this day, what's going on? Come forward. Come talk to me. Come pray with me. Or if you need to sit right there where you are and you need to listen to the Lord and actually submit to the Lord's struggle with you because the Lord loves us so much, He's going to chase us down and cause a struggle in our souls if necessary. Can we say amen to that, those who've been through it? As we close this time of worship, let's ponder what the Lord has told us. Amen. Father God, You have given us the blessing of Your Son, Jesus Christ. You have given us the blessing of Your Word. And I pray, dear God, right now that You would cause everyone who is listening to this right now to hear Your voice. This man that was healed in this text, he had had a hand that was unusable. Yet Jesus restored it to exactly the way it ought to be. And every one of us in this room, we understand that that life, this living in this world, somehow seems wrong and there is some other way that things should be. And your word tells us exactly what that is. And I pray, God, that you would restore anyone in this room or anyone who is listening as they are humble before you, as they are struggling in their physical ailments and in their spiritual ailments, their soul may be so withered, they don't even realize they need restoration. And I pray, God, that Your Holy Spirit would convict them and and compassionately draw them to Your Son. Lord, I pray that this time would bring You honor and glory as we come to You in prayer and in song. We need you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.